Salt Company, how we doing? Yeah. yeah. Let's go. That is so funny. You guys like all migrated into this little corner. That's great. Yeah. Let's go. Efficiency. That's great. Well, hey, welcome, guys. Welcome. If you're new to Salt Company, welcome. My name is Joe. I'm the Salt Company director here. Hey, I'm telling you, this is a really good time to be a part of Salt Company. There's a lot of next steps uh, that are happening for you to follow Jesus. We got Gospel 101 starting next Tuesday. We got baptisms coming up on October 29th. And we got global missions applications opening tonight. And so tonight after Salt Company, we're going to have a late night, okay? In other words, we're going to gather together and learn more about a given topic. And tonight's topic after Salt Company is global missions. And so, man, if you're here and, 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 and you're looking for, I mean, I know a, a lot of us in this room, maybe you're here and you're like, man, I'm looking for something to grow me in my walk with Jesus. Like something that would challenge me, grow me a ton. And I'm telling you, I, don't, I can't think of anything better than going overseas outside of your comfort zone and trusting in the Lord in that way. And so maybe you're here and you're like, dude, I got weddings to go to. I got an internship. I would invite you, still come into this room. Like, go to the late night, put your yes on the table, right, and let God do the rest. So I would love to see you guys there tonight after salt. But I want to start with a question. Um, anybody, like, self-proclaimed car people? Like, you know how cars work pretty well? Like, I could call on you to fix my car kind of guy. couple people, a couple people. Anybody, like, I don't know a thing. Raise your hand. Come on. My people. These are my people right here. Man, yeah, so a couple, a couple years ago, I was on my way back from college uh, for spring break, and so I, I grew up in Michigan, and Michigan, in terms of the weather, is pretty similar to Iowa. So most people, you know, they might go to, like, Florida or somewhere warm for spring break. Raise your hand if you were that person, okay? We were all jealous of you, okay? We were all here in the freezing cold. We're all jealous. So I go uh, back to Michigan. It's freezing cold, and I'm driving my car, and... Um, Man, when it starts to get cold, your tire pressure starts to go down. I know that much, okay? So I need to go get my tires filled up. And so I go to the nearby gas station. I'm like, this has got to be pretty easy, okay? Now, I had never uh, done this before. I had never put air in my tires before. So I'm really just kind of learning. And they make it pretty simple for you. So I go over to the nearby gas station. I park my car, get out, and, like, the cold air, like, hits me in the face. Like, it almost, like, bites me. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the air, like, it hurts your face. And so I'm like, man, I don't even really want to be doing this right now, but I got to do it. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so um, I go, and I, in Michigan, you have to pay for it, which is crazy. And so I uh, connect the air pump to my tire, okay? So things are going really well. Um, and a couple minutes go by, you know, and it's like, I'm like, okay, that's a good thing, okay? Like, it, my tires are inflating. But I'm looking, and my tires are not inflating. I'm like, this is weird. Uh, and then a couple more minutes go by. And my tires start to deflate, okay? So I'm, like, struggling. And eventually what ends up happening, like, I, I'm trying to fix it. Again, my, my, like, my fingers, I can't even feel my fingers at this point. I'm, like, trying to press it in, and it just keeps deflating. So eventually, like, it deflated so much that the tire almost started to fall off the wheel, right? So I'm, like, embarrassed, okay? Like, I'm, like, I should figure, like, this can't even be that hard, right? And my tire is falling off of my beautiful 2003 CRV, okay? It's just gorgeous. Come on. Come on. Uh, and so anyway, it's, it's deflating pretty badly. I'm embarrassed. It's cold. Everything I'm trying is not working, okay? So who do I call? I call my dad, okay? I just feel like dads, you know, whatever. They're really good with cars. And so my dad, I call him, and I tell him the situation. I'm like, hey, I need you to rescue me, right? <laughs> like, it's freezing. My tire is falling off, and I want to just be home. And so my dad 
like drops everything that he's doing and he comes over and he helps me out. Like he parks his car behind mine, he's at the gas station, gets out of his car, doesn't even complain at all. Like it's freezing and he helps me out, right? So this tire that was falling, not falling off the wheel, yeah, essentially, he helped me, right? Like he rescued me in that moment. Like if he had not come and helped me out, like if he had not come to rescue me, I would not have known what to do. Um, why do I share that? Right, like my, my dad, he, he came and he, he rescued me out of the mess that I got myself into. And the reason I share that is because what I want to do tonight is I want to look at the story of our Heavenly Father who has come to rescue people like me and you out of the mess that we created for ourselves. We're going through a series called The Story of Everything. It's four weeks, and all we're trying to do, right, small task, over the course of four weeks, we're looking at the whole storyline of the Bible. And there's 66 books in the Bible, and they're not just individ- like individual, like telling different stories that don't all c- coincide. No, it's, it's one book, and it tells one story. And so week one, we looked at creation. Last week, we looked at the fall, and tonight, I want to continue where that story goes. And so, God... <laughs> We're looking tonight at how God rescues humanity from the mess that we created. You see, I think that all of us, we long for a day when instead of fights, we see people walking in harmony, right? Like our relationships, we're not fighting. We long to live in a society where every wrong is made right, where justice reigns, where people don't take advantage of one another, but instead bless one another, right? Like, like, like people aren't out to get you, right? But you can trust the people around you. We long for that. We long for a time when we don't bicker, backstab, or betray people for our benefit. We long for that kind of life. We long for those kind of relationships. But our relationships in our lives are filled with the effects of sin. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw this incredible picture, this incredible picture of what God created the world to be, why, you know, why we exist. It's just this incredible picture that we see in the opening pages, right, where, where, where God entrusts us to spread his good kingdom throughout the world, right, where we're trusting and walking with him. It's this beautiful picture of joy, but then the colorful pages of Genesis 1 and 2, they turn bleak in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the stage, where we saw that our decision as human beings to sin has severed us from our Genesis 1 design. And so the question is, are we ever going to be restored? Right, like, are we going to be restored? Is there a rescue for humanity? Is there someone or something that will save us from the hurt and pain we experience in this life? Someone or something that can redeem broken people like you and me. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to look at a couple passages in scripture on how God answers that question. And so if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and what we're going to see is that when everything else we try fails to rescue us, man, God does. So if you're taking notes, point number one is dealing with the problem. Dealing with the problem, that's the first point. So as Pastor Todd, he, he showed us last week in Genesis 3 that our sin has ruined God's good world and is designed for humanity, right? It's page two of the Bible, and all is lost already. And so the question is, man, what's God going to do? Right, like, is he going to crumple this up like a bad idea and throw it in the dumpster? No. In fact, you know what God does immediately? As soon as sin comes into his good world, you know what he does immediately? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is what God does. He promises to rid the world of all evil by destroying none other than the devil. Genesis three fifteen, he promises to send someone to crush the devil and defeat sin. Look with me at that verse, three fifteen. God says to the devil, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
and he will strike your head. This person he's going to send, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, he looks at the devil and says, listen, one day I'm getting rid of you. One day I'm going to crush you. I'm going to send someone to crush you, to totally vanish and get rid of all evil in the world. And man, doesn't that sound amazing? Like, imagine a world where, like, injustice, sickness, hurt, pain, abuse, hatred, everything is completely erased, right? Like, in your life. Imagine if you lived a life where that, those things didn't exist anymore, and we all, I think we all instinctively yearn for that. In fact, maybe you've asked this question before. You're like, okay, man, I'm listening to this whole Genesis 1 to 3 story. Like, man, evil's in the world. Why can't God just get rid of it? Like, come on. Like, that's it. He's God. Like, why can't he just get rid of evil? And that's a good question. I think all of us have asked that question before, but there's a problem. Because the same evil that's out there is the same evil inside you and me. What the Bible says is that if God gets rid of all evil, he gets rid of all of us. But the incredible story of the Bible is that our loving God has a plan to get rid of all evil in the world without getting rid of you and me. That's the story of the Bible. And so his plan, well, we get the first glimpse of this in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you guys want to turn there, Exodus chapter 12, we're going to hop over there. But we see the first glimpse of God's response to this sin, how he's going to make a way to bring us back to the design that he had for us. And so as you guys go there, I want to catch up on what's going on. Israel at this point, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, um, Man, they are being enslaved and oppressed by the most op oppressive, horrible, wicked ruler of that time. And his name was Pharaoh. Probably heard of him. And Pharaoh, he was an evil, evil man. He despised God. And so what he did is he took God's people and he subjected them to abusive slavery. slavery. It's this horrible, horrible story. And so we see Pharaoh just being this horrible character in Scripture. And he gets to this point where he even looks at the people of Israel and he says, listen, I'm so against your God, I want to prove a point to you. He says that he wants to get rid of all of the young boys of Israel by taking their lives. And so God's people, man, they're hurting. And like, where is God at? And so what God ends up doing is he sends 10 plagues to them, right? These 10 plagues and each of them, man, it's an opportunity for Pharaoh to have his eyes open to turn away from the things that he's doing. Like, it's God's chance for him to say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be doing this. So he sends these ten plagues. Water turns to blood. God sends, like, this nauseating amount of frogs, lice, flies, locusts, right? You get the picture. And yet Pharaoh will not budge. Every single time, like, Pharaoh will not budge at all. And so God, he sends this last plague where he kind of turns the tables on Pharaoh and says, hey, listen, just like how you killed the sons of Israel, I'm going to take the lives of the firstborn of all the Egyptian people. All of your people, Pharaoh. I'm going to do this. So he flips the tables on him. God would destroy the Egyptian firstborn children for the sins of Pharaoh and his people. That's what happens in Exodus 12. But God, he offers a way out, like a way to escape his wrath for sin. How does he do this? Through the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses, he summoned all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families, and slaughter the Passover animal. 
take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel in the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. For God's wrath for sin was coming to Egypt, to the place where Israel and the Egyptians were staying. But God provides a way for them to escape. It's through this sacrifice of a lamb, through the blood of a lamb. And so how does this show us that God is restoring humanity back to that Genesis 1 thing, right? Like this, this thing that we all yearn for, to live with and for him, the answer lies in looking deeper into what the Passover stands, looks, what it stands for and what it accomplishes. So we're going to go a little deeper. All right, so I hope you guys are with me. Here's what, here's what the Passover accomplishes. Number one, it atones for sin. It atones for sin. In other words, it paid the cost for their sin. That's what the Passover did. It, it atoned, it paid the cost for their sin, and so the lamb would die to pay for the sins of someone like you or me. The lamb would die so that we could keep living. That's the first thing it does. And then second, it purifies. It purifies, man. It washed them clean from their sins. So the blood of the lamb, they'd put it on their doorpost so that when the Lord would pass by, he wouldn't strike them. But the blood of the lamb, it purified everyone in the house. It was as though all of their records were wiped clean. And then the last thing it does is it sanctifies. Sanctifies. Uh, it made them brand new. It's another way to think about it. We'll talk more about what that sanctified word means here in a minute. But it made them brand new. So what would happen is you read in Exodus chapter 12, a little, a little later on, they're instructed to eat the meat of this sacrifice. And as they eat the meat of the sacrifice, they would be made, it was like this cleansing thing that would happen, they would be made holy by eating this, this pure and spotless lamb. So their status before God, their status before God was restored, even if just for a little bit back to what it was before sin had entered into the world, Right? So they're restored, in other words, for the Passover sacrifice and the sacrificial system that we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the whole rest of the Old Testament. Those sacrifices, and through those things, humanity would begin to be restored to their intended design. To have a refresh walk with God and to start living with him. And so, man, things are looking up, right? Like, man, people have a way to get back to God, to be restored back to this incredible picture of Genesis 1 where we're walking with God in the garden. Things seem to be looking up, but there's something wrong. Something desperately wrong. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about these sacrifices. They're good, but he says, starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, since the law, right, talking about these sacrifices, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. I mean, otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, man, there's a reminder of sins year after year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Point number two is this, an incomplete solution. An incomplete solution. Um, anybody travel out of town recently? Raise your hand if you travel out of town, anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Vacation, maybe this past summer, right? Where'd you guys go? Shout it out. Where'd you guys go this summer? I went to Canada. Is there anything cool in Canada? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Mexico, let's go. Awesome. 
Yeah, y'all were traveling. I bet you guys probably did, but I always do when I travel, is before this starts, man, I'm looking up all the pictures, right? Like, I'm looking at my Airbnb. I'm looking at my hotel. I'm like, yo, is there a hot tub? What's my room look like? And then you're looking at pictures of the city, right? You're like, man, you want to look at the nearby attractions, the restaurants, right? You're looking all these pictures up. Um, last summer, uh, I, me and my wife and, and four other students, we got to go overseas on the missions trip uh, to Southeast Asia. And I had never been overseas in my life. Like, I had never gone ever, and I'm about to go. So I, like, all I know is America, right? And so I look up these pictures, and I'm like, man, what's Southeast Asia like? Like, what's the, what are the streets like? Like, what's the build, like, what are the buildings like? Like, what's the scenery like? Like, what should I expect when I go overseas to this place that I'd never been before? I'm looking at all these pictures, and you've probably done the same thing before you go. And you're probably with me when I say, man, the pictures are nothing compared to when you're actually there, right? Man, the pictures, man, they're nothing compared to the reality itself, man. The real thing is always way better. The real thing. Way better than just the pictures. And the author, in Hebrews, he's saying something similar about the Old Testament sacrifices. He's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who had really grown up giving sacrifices. Like, this is their life. Like, they're like, man, yeah, the Old Testament sacrifices, this is something I do all the time. And so what the author is saying is that these sacrifices, they're only a shadow. Man, they're really only a picture pointing to something way better. In fact, he says that while they were decent for the time being, these sacrifices, man, they, they were good for the time being, there were some real problems with these old sacrifices. Listen again to verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year after year after year after year. See, one of the big problems with these Old Testament sacrifices for these people, one of the problems with this was that it could never perfect me and you. I mean, it's in the passage. It says they could never perfect you and me. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Like, perfect us? Like, what does that mean? To perfect us, it means this. For a sacrifice to perfect us means that it completes God's work of, rede- of redemption in our lives. It refers to being rescued and restored to our Genesis 1 life where we're totally connected with God. Like, where we get to experience his love and his peace, like from sunset to, 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 from sunrise to sunset, like we are always experiencing that, totally connected with him, totally connected with one another, serving and being served by one another, sharing each other's burdens and needs, right? And so the problem, the problem with these sacrifices, he says that these sacrifices, they couldn't do that. Man, they couldn't perfect me and you. They couldn't rescue us. They couldn't rescue us. In fact, no matter how many sacrifices you gave, it could never get you to where you wanted to be. It's a little bit like a treadmill, right? Any runners here? People like to run here? Yeah? Um, I would guess that most, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. A few of us, okay, yeah, not me, not us, you guys. Um, yeah, but, man, I would probably guess that you would prefer to run outside than on a treadmill because there's something about, man, you're going from point A to point B, you get to experience the fresh air, right? You're outside, it's way better because you're traveling somewhere. Whereas on a treadmill, you're literally running in place. You think about that? Why are you on a treadmill, right? It's, you're running in place. It's not as fun, right? Uh, but why do I mention that? Because a treadmill, you're running literally in place. No matter how hard you work, you're not getting anywhere. And so in the same way, these sacrifices, they were a lot of work, but it didn't get them anywhere. No matter how many sacrifices you would perform, they were never enough to bring you to where you wanted to be, and that was close to God. 
these sacrifices, bottom line in Hebrews 10, these sacrifices, man, they don't deliver. And then he kind of lands the plane in verse 4. He says, hey, listen, you want to know why your sacrifices don't really, really work? Verse 4, listen, he says, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he points out to his audience and says, hey, listen, you want to know why these aren't working? He says, because they, they, they can't, an animal can't cover for a human wrong. The life of an animal can't cover for a human wrong. I mean, it doesn't balance out. In other words, these sacrifices, he says, man, they're faulty. So the author says, hey, the way to a relationship with God is not found in these sacrifices. It's found in something better. Get off the treadmill. And so, then I wonder where you're looking. Like, there are ways that they were trying to seek after God, but it wasn't working for them. And I wonder, like, if somebody were to ask you, how do you have a relationship with God? Like, what makes you a Christian, right? Like, if somebody were to ask you that question, or, I mean, how do you know if you're forgiven? I wonder what you'd say. They, they would look at their sacrifices. They would look at, the, the man, the pile of the animals that they've sacrificed and say, well, I've, I've done all that. Like, I, I've sacrificed all the animals that, that I feel like I I've need to, but I trust that's probably not any of our problem, right? I think a lot of us would look to our good behavior to have a relationship with God, where it's like, man, sure, man, I, I've done bad things. Like, sure, I've made mistakes. I mean, I do my best. I sleep with a Bible next to my bed, and I go to, I go to church when, it's, when it fits in my schedule. I'm nice to people. But like the priest stacking sacrifice after sacrifice and never getting any closer, any, anywhere near where they needed to be with God, you stack your good deeds and your good deeds on top of one another over and over, hoping that it will be enough to bring you to God when like the old sacrifices, they never are. Get off this treadmill. It's not getting you anywhere. Others try to get to God through other religions, right? In Islam, you get to heaven by not being a bad person, but instead being a good person, right? You do enough good deeds, and you'll get there, hopefully. Or maybe in Hinduism, you do your best to be a good person in each reincarnated life that you have until one day, if you live a good enough life, you break free from the cycle, and you become one with the universe, right? So it's, it's you have to be good enough. But like these sacrifices, we inwardly know, and it's never going to be enough. It's like being on a treadmill, a lot of work, but it's not getting you anywhere. When we try to be good people, we inevitably fail, right? If, if you're here and you're like, man, the way that I can get to God, the way that, you know, what makes me a Christian is how, how many good things that I do if I'm just an overall good person. And when we really try to be those good kind of people, if we were to be real with ourselves, if we were to look in the mirror just for a minute, none of us would be able to live up to the, guys, we can't even meet our own standards. We get angry. We gossip, we backstab, we lust, we lie, we cheat. And it's back to trying to be good enough to make up for those things that you do. You can't live with yourself, so you try to do more and more and more and more, hoping that your stack of good deeds makes up for the bad. And maybe, maybe if that's you, you're, you're here and you're like, man, I'm exhausted from that. And I'm exhausted of trying to be good enough, only to fail eventually. To me and you, we need a real solution. In other words, we need Jesus. And so point three is the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution. So, man, the author, he says all this about these old sacrifices to really tee up what he's about to say, where he tells us that the rescue we've been longing for is here, that the rescue that the animal sacrifices pointed to is here. And he says it's Jesus. It's Jesus in verse 11. Listen to what he says. He says, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins, 
verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, man, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, notice how he says that the, the priest stands day after day, but Jesus, he sat down. You know what he's trying to get to? He's saying, all their sacrifices has never been enough, but Jesus, all he had to do was give this one sacrifice himself, and it was enough. Like, he's able to sit down. The work is done. This is God's plan for rescuing you and me, but how? Like, how does the cross of Christ, like, how, how does Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, like, how does that rescue you and me? How does that bring us back to our Genesis 1 design of living with God and living for him? How does it do this? I don't know if you guys remember what the Passover lamb accomplished, right? Remember all it did for the Israelites? Jesus, you know he's called in John chapter 1, the opening chapter, John? He's called the Passover lamb. That's what he's nicknamed now. He's the Passover lamb. Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. He accomplishes all of what the old Passover lamb did, and it's better. Across the board. See, Jesus, his sacrifices, his sacrifice atones. It pays the debt you and I owe to God, not just for a little bit, right? Like with the Old Testament sacrifices, it's like you go and you offer your sacrifice, you go out and you get in a fight with your best friend. It's like, gosh dang it, I got to go find a dove, right? Like it just was always happening. The reality of Jesus's sacrifice is that it was perfect and it paid the debt you and I owe to God forever. And here's what this means. For many of us, we fear that we have to make up for our wrongs, right? Like as Christians, some of us fear our sin makes us, makes God no longer love us. Like, like yesterday, we were doing all right. Like, God loved me, and things were going well. He's for me. He's not against me, right? And then you sin, right? Like, this morning, you choose to do something that you know you shouldn't. And you go out the rest of your day being like, man, God just, I, I, I disappointed him. He hates me. Like, he's against me now. Like, almost like God is keeping track of all the things that you're doing, right? But that's not the gospel. Jesus' sacrifice is more beautiful than that. You see, because of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, there's no sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no sin that he won't forgive. Look down at verse 17. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. God says this. He says, get this. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Guys, his sacrifice pays the debt you and I owe. Man, you don't have to try to prove it to God anymore. How, you know, by, by trying to be good enough, you don't need to. And second, it purifies. Man, it purifies. Jesus' blood, it washes away our sin. Have you guys ever, you guys ever wondered, like, why that's, the, why that's the language the Bible uses to refer to, to being saved, like, th that your sin is washed away? Like, why, why does your sin have to be washed away? Because sin makes all of us feel filthy. All of us have stories in this room of, of when we've done things that you wouldn't want anybody in this room to know. And it makes you feel filthy. So what we need is we need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. And that's what Jesus' blood does. It washes away the filth and stain of sin completely. And some of us who follow Jesus, we got a hard time believing that, right? <laughs> like, we, we got a hard time believing that Jesus, he really purified us, right? We're haunted by the decisions we made last year, last week, or even today. But Christian, in the room, 
because the blood of Jesus has washed you clean, you don't need to feel that shame anymore. At conference a couple years ago, Saul Rexius, who since planted a church um, in Oregon, he said this. He said, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But God, he knows your sin, and he calls you by your name. You're washed clean. That's what it means. And lastly, it sanctifies. Man, Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, man, it sanctifies you and me. And you're like, man, I don't know what that means. Let me help you. We see this in our passage. Listen to verse 10. By this will, we're talking about the plan of God to to send his son Jesus to die on the cross. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So to be sanctified, it means that me and you were set apart. Like Like you're taken out of a crowd, like you stand out. You're set apart and you're declared holy, pure, blameless, as though we've never sinned. The slate wiped totally clean. Here's what this means. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you called on him to save you? If so, you're, you're given the perfect, blameless, spotless record of Jesus. So that when Jesus, that when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see all the wrong that you've done. He doesn't see all the wrong that I've done, and I've done a lot of wrong. The beauty of the gospel is that when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see all your mistakes. He sees all Jesus' successes. He was pure, perfect. He lived a perfectly obedient life, the life that me and you, we could never live. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, he declares you and I pure and blameless. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious. And when he does this, when we're sanctified, in other words, it just means that we're pleasing to him. And it's a status that me and you, we haven't had since Genesis 1. The humanity hasn't had since Genesis 1. You see, God's approval of you has been sealed forever. And so, when Jesus, through his sacrifice, he brings me and you near to God. So that's like half of the, the, the picture. It's like half of it. In Genesis 1, we're drawn near to God. That's great. But still, Jesus, he does more. In Genesis 1, we were created to live for God, to flourish through obeying him. But we know from Scripture, and we know from our experience, that oftentimes we'd rather follow our own desires than follow God's. I don't know about you. It's true of me. But this changes when you trust in Jesus. Like something changes. If you look down in verse 16, it says that Jesus, it says that God, he, he writes the laws of God on your heart. You're like, what? Like he like writes it on my heart? Like what does that mean? Like what is this getting at? And have you ever met people who are like, I'm a Christian. And you're like, man, your actions don't show it. Have you, ha- have you had that before? I think all of us have had experiences like that. You see, nothing has changed for them. But Jesus, when you trust in him, when you trust in his perfect sacrifice, he brings you to God and he changes you from the inside out. When he writes the law of God in your heart, in other words, what that means, he puts, he puts God's word in the, at the center of your being so that you're desiring to now want to walk with him. Like your desire, your joy is to submit to him and follow him anywhere. Say, Jesus, I'll, I'll go, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I, man, I just want to follow you. That's what it means. It's this transformation that happens. And so in other words, Jesus' sacrifice alone, and it restores you and me. It rescues us from the problem of sin in all of our lives by bringing us to God in a way that none of your good deeds, no other religion, no other way other than Jesus could ever do. And he makes you and I new. That's what he does. And so what's the hope of the world? Like, 
for people like you and for me. You see, you were created for a relationship with God. Your soul yearns for it, and guess what? Nothing in this world will ever satisfy that gap in your heart that only God can fill. No relationship, no success, no experience, nothing. And to get it, you need to be redeemed from your sin. To have that relationship with God, you need to be redeemed from your sin, brought back to God, and made new. And the only way to get there is not by being good enough, not by trying different religions, but by placing your faith in Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, the lamb of God. You see, Christianity is not about God, you working your way up to God. It's about God coming down to us. See, Jesus, he died so that you can live. He rose so that you can be made new, set free, restored. That's what Jesus did. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, like you haven't placed your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin and to bring you to God, right? Jesus looks at you tonight and he says, get off the treadmill. Stop trying to be good enough for me. It's not getting you anywhere. Man, you're tiring yourself out. It's not getting you anywhere. Come, let me lift you up to the throne of your loving God, the very thing that you have been trying after, pursuing. And that starts tonight by you placing your faith in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, listen, if you want to be saved, if you want to be restored, all you have to do is you come to him and you bring your deed and say, Jesus, save me. And so maybe you're here and that's you. Like maybe your friend dragged you to come to this thing, to Salt Company, and you're like, man, I don't even know why I'm here. And as you're listening, you're like, man, I, I, I think I want to place my faith in Jesus. Man, I think I want to have this relationship with God. And if that's you, in a minute we're going to worship, we're going to sing. And I would just encourage you, during that time, man, spend time and do business with God. Spend time with him and cry out to him and say, Jesus, will you save me? This is all company. Let me pray for us and we'll sing.